Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. This is a first for the CMO podcast. We are recording a live episode at the historic State Theater in State College, Pennsylvania, the home of Penn State University, where I earned my MBA, and more importantly, where I met my wife. I recently hosted a panel discussion in the State Theater with three notable alumni of Penn State. We discussed college memories, challenging times in their careers, and what makes for a happy and fulfilling life. The theater was packed with Penn State alumni, and oh my, did we have fun. My three guests today are as inspiring as they are different. First, we have the Honorable Tanya R. Kennedy, an Associate Justice on the Supreme Court of the State of New York. Second, we have television director Don Roy King, who directed more live television than anyone in history, including 16 seasons of NBC's Saturday Night Live. Third, we have Kelly Wolgast, who has worn many hats in her life. She served 26 years in the U.S. Army, retired as a colonel, where she was, among other things, deputy commander and chief nurse in Afghanistan. She served as the director of the Penn State COVID-19 Operations Control Center and is currently an associate teaching professor at the Penn State College of Nursing. This is my conversation with three remarkable Nittany Lions. We have to start with a few SNL questions because when we all got together, these two ladies, all they wanted to talk about was SNL. So maybe a couple quick questions. What was the best cold opening you've ever directed? The best cold open was probably one that got the fewest laughs. Oh. In fact, the best three were ones that got the fewest laughs. We did a cold opening uh, after the Sandy Hook Oh. Massacre, where we had a group, nice way to start this session, <laughs> where we had a kids' choir sing Silent Night. And we faded to black, faded back up, and they said, all together, live from New York. We had a cold open after the Las Vegas shooting at the, the hotel with the band that was on stage that day. And we brought them in, and they sang, uh, We Won't Back Down. And a third time, we had um, Kate McKinnon as uh, Hillary Clinton play the piano and sing Hallelujah the day after she lost the election. I remember. But it was moving. It was uh, the, uh, the, the composer uh, had... Uh, uh, Leonard Cohen had died that week, and she sang it so beautifully with that sense of, hey, we're going to be okay. I think she ended, she ended the song that way, said, we're going to be fine. And, uh, and so those resonate with me because they were not just part of Saturday Night Live, but they were healing, and, uh, and, and we are pretty good at offering some healing, and I was proud of those I remember all three, Don. Very, very powerful. Thank you. Now, since my other two panelists just wanted to talk to Don when we got together about an hour ago, I'm going to give you a chance to ask him a question. Tanya, what do you want to ask him? What is your favorite memory of Penn State? 
Oh, Penn oh. State. When I was at Penn State, I spent most of my time in the theater department. I had done a little acting as a kid, and for some reason when I got here, there was no call from me from Joe Paterno. And <laughs> you weren't big enough. Oh. You weren't small enough. I don't know. Can you throw? I can run. Oh, yeah. <laughs> However, uh, my high school time was spent mostly in, in, in sports, but I had done some acting before that, and I thought, well, let me wander into the theater department, and I spent my time, even though I was a broadcasting major, I didn't have the guts to tell my dad I was going to be an acting major, uh, but I spent my time in the theater department and was cast as the lead in an opera. Now, there's one caveat. The, the character I played, <laughs> the lead male, was a, a little mute gypsy, gypsy boy. <laughs> the, the Benjamin Britten, who wrote that musical, uh, wrote that opera, hated tenors. So he wrote the lead character to be this boy who couldn't talk. And it was... Um, my favorite role and my favorite memory. <laughs> Kelly, your turn. I would ask you, what advice would you give to a Penn State student now about the future that lies ahead in your field? When the pandemic hit, you may have heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of people say, when can we get back to doing things the way we used to? And I said, I'm not sure that's the right question because we have been forced to learn a whole new way to tell stories, a whole new way to do television. And in fact, we did a whole series. Uh, we did five or six, we did four programs for, uh, of Saturday Night Live uh, that were all remote. When it was first announced by Lorne Michaels that we were going to shut down for a while because of the pandemic, I thought, oh, that's, that, that's a big mistake for us to try to do these remote shows because it, it, those, those will be watered down Saturday Night Live. There'll be no live music. There'll be no live audience. It will not be, uh, there won't be the same guts that, that Saturday Night Live has always had. And I said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't we just do the show the way we've always done it except we'll invite people into the audience who have already contracted the disease. <laughs> they, they, they can't make each other any sicker, and they could use the, the diversion. And I'll be down the hall in the locked control room. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, the cast and crew did not see it my way. <laughs> so we did these remote shows, and I sat home and watched them. I said, wow, this, this is pretty good. The second one was even better. And my only involvement was I had sent everybody a note saying, here's how to mic and how to light and how to be careful about the framing. And, and then I forgot that most of those young comedians had come up this way doing little online uh, uh, sketches. And they were great at it. And by the third show, it was amazing. And I sent them another memo saying, I have never been more proud of a show I had nothing to do with. <laughs> At any rate, my answer to, that, to the question was, um, maybe there's a new way to tell stories. Yeah. I'll bet that 50 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, people sat around a room and said, oh, they, they've invited, invented this thing called television, and they want us to tell stories. And we can't. How are we going to do that? It's a little fuzzy little black and white picture, a tiny little box, and teeny audio, and, and, and you just can't possibly 
create stories that move people and that are important. And, and somehow we did, and somehow they did. And somehow television became a very viable way to tell stories. It's not the same as watching a movie. It's not the same as watching live theater. It's its own independent way of making people laugh and clap and think and feel. And so maybe there is a, a way we can use these, this skill set that we have gained to, uh, to, to start a new Zoom channel or at least to use the electronical uh, uh, advances to, uh, to, to find a way to, to, to in, improve what we do. And I think that's what's happened. And I forgot what the question was. <laughs> you answered it. Well done. I well enjoyed done. every minute of it. Okay. All right, I want to return the three of you back to your college years, your university years. Two of you are uh, 80s graduates, and one of you is a 60s graduate. And my first question 69. is, and Kelly, 69. I want to start with you. This is, a, this is a bit of a nostalgia lightning round. So we're going to go through these pretty quickly. First question, favorite band or song or record when you were here? And thank you, great. So when I was here, Prince and Purple Rain was like catching on fire, and it was awesome. And, and back in the day, we, um, we couldn't spend the money downtown at the bars. We'd just go to, you know, West Halls or North Halls or East Hall, and we'd just party in the rooms, right? And I could just remember lots of Prince and dancing and dancing and dancing. Tanya. It was wonderful. Uh, same thing, Prince. Uh, loved the sign of the times, that album. And Mr. C's was a club here. <laughs> I remember. And the tavern couldn't go. <laughs> I remember. Don. Well, I, I, I appreciate the prince, but I like the king. <laughs> that trumps the prince. <laughs> All right, good. All right, favorite snack. There used to be downtown this uh, subway shop with amazing French fries, and I can't recall the name of it. I keep wreck, but it was. I lived in Pollock, and so it was an easy walk down, and that was. I, so said that was at CC right, Peppers. Good. Thank you, thank you. So you, when I had a few dollars, which was very rare, that's what I would get and treat myself with. Tanya, your favorite snack? Sticky buns at yep. the defunct Ye Old College yeah. Diner. <laughs> Can you top all this? When I was here, State College was in black and white. <laughs> and I could be wrong, but I don't think snacks had been invented. <laughs> Actually, you're right. Pringles was invented in the 60s, so you're about right. It was, just, it was just launching. Okay, your favorite procrastination activity at Penn State when you're trying to avoid studying. So I was in ROTC, I was in nursing, I did not have any time, I would sleep. That was it, because there was so much. You never procrastinated. I couldn't, I didn't have time to procrastinate. I love it. Tanya, the same? Same thing. I would be in the library Friday night, Saturday night, and I would say, I will meet you at the Paul Robeson Cultural Center after studying. I was really like a type A++. I'm now like a type a plus. I somehow think your answer, Don, is going to be different. Yeah. Well, what, wait, Penn State had a library? <laughs> I, I missed it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, you're, you're procrastinating now. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. That's it. It's a, misdirection is a, is a key to, to all procrastination. I, I would go to Rec Hall and play basketball. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. 
I wouldn't call that procrastination. Broke my ankle. Uh, came back to haunt me 60 years later. Did they have hospitals back then? <laughs> Did they have hospitals back then? <laughs> I, I, I didn't make it. It's Center County Community Hospital. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Best friend in your time at Penn State, Kelly. You know what? I, 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 this is going to sound cheesy, um, but... When you're in a program such as like an Army ROTC, you can't do it without all your colleagues. So every, I tell everybody when I, I had a long career in the military, but I learned everything I needed to know to be successful in the Army right here at Penn State in my ROTC program. And that was because of the senior ROTC cadets that were here that took me under their wing and taught me a whole bunch. So when I launched into the military, I was like, wow, I can't believe how much I learned. So I, I can't, I don't think there is just mm. one person I can say is my best friend. The whole Penn State environment was my best friend. I came from out of state and had never, it's, you know, not now today you get to, you know, come here and spend a night and new student orientation, you know, all of that stuff, right? You can look at it online. I never came to visit Penn State when I showed up here. When I showed up here, my dad drove me down here. We came on old, the old 322 from Rochester, New York. I came up over the mountain. I saw Beaver Stadium. And I said, oh my God, what did I do? I had no idea, no idea. He dropped me off with my one suitcase and he said, I'll see you in four years. <laughs> that was how it happened. So I had to make friends here and I had to become part of this culture. And I, I never, ever looked back. Tanya, best friend. Oh, this is so easy. Um, Maureen Lohman and Rona Jolliffe-Dispute, they are my uh, sorority sisters, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. We just came back from Costa Rica. They were in my wedding, I was in their uh, wedding. We see each other every, let's say, month or month, every other month. And I just have to mention two other names. Uh, Rosinia uh, Williams, uh, back then we called her Cindy, and um, my roommate, may she rest in peace, Erica Huey Downs. I just had such a great community, and now I go by Tanya, but if you went to high school with me or college, you know me as TK, and I let them know, in spite of my title, we have history. And that's what you should call me. You should call me TK. So some people didn't even know my real name. They, they would refer to me as uh, TK. But I've been so blessed to have these lifelong friendships. And you would see the three of us. We were three musketeers. Don. From TK to DK. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, I, I had a, a friend uh, named Steve Hubasek who was a theater major and really a fine actor and a smart, sharp guy. I was sure that he was gonna be the next Johnny Carson. I mean, sure. And he developed or discovered a, a deep depression issue, became homeless, could not work, and he died last year. This is a tie into my Sandy Hook story. I'm sorry, sorry. But, uh, Every time I, I, I wander these streets, I think of what he could have been, what he should have been, and what he wasn't. I want to stick with this. Uh, maybe you'll tell the same story to this question, but you're sitting here decades after you were a student here, and is there anything that comes to mind, a person, an experience, a professor, a class, an event, that has stayed with you to this day as in a way of being part of who you are? 
I mean, I met my wife here, so it was, that was very, uh, it changed my life. So that was, it's a very easy one for me to think about. But how about the three of you? Anything that comes to mind? I'll start. I two things. Certainly my experience in the military, I ended up staying in the military a very long time, so that goes without saying. But from my clinical, my nursing background, I remember one of my clinical experiences and I I was a student and I, you know, thought I'd know you know, you know, you think you know everything when you're a student. Um, and I missed something on a patient that was, it was in my OBGYN or my mother-baby time experience, and I missed that her blood pressure was too high in my assessment. And I will never forget um, my faculty person who came and was not very happy with me about that and said a few things that resonate in my brain today, but that taught me a very big lesson that you can't miss those kind of things in clinical practice, right? Because, and, and so I won't ever forget that. Wow, Tanya? Dean William Gibbs, he was the dean of what was then called the School of Communications and he looked like Santa Claus. Um, no, and I mean this in, in, in the most respectful way, you know, um, warm, humble, and he uh, gave me so many opportunities and I remember we drove to Hershey because I was an IAMA recipient. He nominated me for the award. And, and from that, I also had the privilege of working one summer at DuPont in Wilmington, Delaware. Delaware. That was wonderful. And I regret that I didn't stay in touch with Professor Gibbs. And another person uh, is William Rotfeld. Uh, he was a professor here, and I so enjoyed his class, Media and the Law. And I'm happy to say that he does know uh, that I am a judge. I kept in touch with him, and so just mentioning his name, that tells me that I need to uh, reach out. And also, uh, Lawrence Young, now retired, we keep in touch then the, uh, the director of the Paul Robeson Cultural Center, and Arlene Cheatham. Um, many of you may know her uh, husband, Dr. Harold Cheatham, and she was my academic advisor. And I'm happy to say that we keep in touch from time to time. So it's these people that poured into me, saw something in me, and supported me, and also the various nurses at the Rittenauer Health uh, Center. Now, you know I had the 411 who came up in the Rittenauer Health Center, right? But never said anything, but these nurses were wonderful. Invite me over to their house for dinner, and it's these connections that will stay with me. My mother was a college nurse, and what a career. What the things that she saw and the relationships she built, very, very special. The lives she impacted, that's the key. The thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives, right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's rewarding. Yeah. Don, how about yourself? Close us out on this one. I mentioned that I uh, became a broadcasting major just so I could stay close to the theater, but uh, my final year, we had a project where we actually had to produce uh, an actual show and we were assigned our roles. I believe I was the producer, and, uh, and what we uh, did was um, um, bring a group of people in to talk about some project they were doing, and it was a, sort of a live talk show. 
and the, uh, the student who was assigned to direct it uh, put the headsets on, and I could see that his hand was shaking a little bit, and he said, all right, let, let's do it. Uh, take one. I said, well, no, you got to roll tape first. It's said, oh, yeah, roll the tape. Okay, ready, two, take six. No, I don't even, I'm four. No, I don't, I, I, I said, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, don't panic here. All you have to do is just follow the action, and, he, he, and his hand was still shaking. I said, ah, let me do it. I put the headsets on, and I started to call the shots as they happened and, and uh, transmit what I needed to the crew as quickly as I could in, very, in a shorthand of, uh, uh, give me a little tighter shot to everybody, two, take two. And I realized that, uh, that, that it was going smoothly. I was keeping my eye on the clock. I was avoiding any issues. If something happened, uh, I let, let that go by. You can't, you can't dwell on who made that mistake or why that happened. Otherwise, it's going to snowball. And uh, I anticipated what might happen next. When it was over, I thought, oh, that was kind of a, an adrenaline rush. And I, I loved that. And I found out that I sort of had a, a proclivity for it. And I thought, but it also feels familiar. And I realized that it's the same feeling that I had when I was playing quarterback in, in, in high school. And I thought, ah. I love that feeling. I love that pressure. I love that sense of, of in-the-moment decision-making and depending on your whole team to do their roles and, and to transmit very quickly what, what I need. And uh, uh, that adrenaline rush and that sense of excitement stayed with me for the next 53 years. And every Saturday night, I would get that same rush, that same challenge, that same sense of hey, I'm sort of guiding this team uh, uh, through an event. And that happened uh, here at Penn State, where my first job was at WR, it was at WPSX at the time, WPSU. And I started my career directing at a, a black and white television station here at Penn State. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Our, our conference is themed about leadership and managing through adversity. And the three of you have incredible careers. I suspect you've had some setbacks, you've had some adversity. So could each of you tell maybe a story about some time in your post-Penn State life when you have confronted something that was difficult, challenging, and how you navigated through it, and what you learned from that that might help our great alumni volunteers in the audience. Does anyone want to start with this one? I'll start. 2013, because I was elected to the bench in 2005. And in 2013, I really thought I would elevate to the Supreme Court. And it's a two-step process. The first step is you submit your application to the independent judicial screening panel. And you are reported out. And that means that they believe you are qualified to become a candidate. And the second part, if you make it through the first, then you have to get the political support. And I did not come out the panel. I was devastated. And 
I had to take a step back and let the ego go and to, 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 to really think about the fact that when a door closes, it's because another door is going to open and that it really wasn't meant for me to have that position at that time. And I became the supervising judge. But I want to take a step back because I then, after I put the ego aside, I celebrated those who were successful, who were going to the second part. I let the ego go aside. And I became the supervising judge instead. And I think that was a better opportunity. And the reason why I say that is because it added to my skill set where I'm now, quote unquote, supervising my colleagues, fellow judges. And I don't see myself as supervising other judges. It, it's mainly seeking their collaboration about how to ensure efficient court operations. And then one more, I'll, I'll make it quick, just being a new judge. And certainly some decisions you make, people are not gonna agree with them. And so it was very important to have, as I say, an angel network that I still have today a close and small number of people who support me, who I can go to and let my hair down and confide uh, in them. So those are the two stories. But you, you, you should never forget who you are and know that you belong and that you are qualified, and it's about self-acceptance. You can't buy into what others think or say. You have to know who you are. I think I'll end it there. I'm, I'm not gonna let you go quite yet. Okay. How did you put your ego aside? It's not easier said than done. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it kind of goes back to training, and I credit my mother for a lot of that, the, the life lessons that she has instilled in me. And certainly, I am also a woman of faith. So I had to go back to those life lessons with respect to my mother, with respect to the church and just kind of marinate and meditate on those things. And I always say that I am not my title. I am Tanya R. Kennedy, who happens to be a judge, because I, I recognize the fact that titles come and titles go. And it's really important to be humble and to keep your finger on the human condition and the human pulse. So important. 
Thanks, Tanya. Don, could you share a story? I hesitate to do that because in many ways, I'm not sure why I'm up here. <laughs> I think these two women have overcome enormous obstacles and are doing very important work in very important fields. There were two other men who were going to be on the panel but couldn't for other reasons, one of whom uh, had been, was paralyzed in a, in, a, in a Nittany Line football game and not expected to walk again the very next year. He sort of led the team back on the field as he, as he ran uh, from the locker room. He went on to be and is now a, 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 a successful attorney, but also was a, a state senator in New Jersey. Adam Talavero, as we all know. Yeah. The fourth man named Dan Berlin uh, is an ultra marathoner and a remarkable physical specimen who happens to be blind. And those four uh, are hard for me to, to step up and look up to because I was born with every possible advantage you could think of. I was born in the United States. I was born male and white with great parents and, and, and healthy. And if I had half the soul of these other four people, I wouldn't be a television director. I would be Pope. <laughs> Roy Pope King. It sounds good. <laughs> so you're, you're not going to, that's okay. All right. Well, you know, I would have to say to your defense, the three stories you told to open up this session about three things you did with that cast to help us heal. Don't minimize that. I, I remember that vividly. And I also remember what you did after 9-11. And I was in a weird situation at that time. And I, it's, it's vivid. So you have helped the country deal with a lot of stuff over the last several decades. I would love to take credit for any or all of those. I can't. However, uh, that's uh, Lorne Michaels who made those decisions and has a sense of maintaining the, the integrity of that show and the value of it. And, and he's the one who insisted that, that we, we, we do what we did. I pointed cameras at them and, and, and that, that's, that's it. Kelly, come on. I'll start by saying sometimes you're put in the right place at the right time with the right skills and the right level of energy to tackle it. And most of the time people think I'm talking about my time in combat when I served in the military in very bad places around the world. And actually I was just minding my business last July in 2020 and it was a weekend and I was at my house just, you know, minding my business. And the phone rang and I answered it. And it was Provost Nick Jones. And I didn't know Provost Nick Jones at all. I think I'd seen him at an event once and that was it. So not my, not my friend, not knowing him at all. And he said, and, and those of you that know him know he speaks with an, uh, he's New Zealand, so he has a bit of an accent on the phone. And he said, Kelly. And I said, Provost Jones, <laughs> how can I help you? And he said to me, so he went through a little bit of the history of what was happening, you know, with the pandemic and with uh, what was going on at Penn State. And he said, so your name came to my attention as someone who might consider uh, leading up our COVID operations. We really didn't have a name. He didn't have a name for it at that time. And he said, well, would you consider that? And I said, yes. 
he tells the story now, he'll say he was taken aback. He, he never had, had someone say yes so quickly in his entire academic life, right? So he said, you don't want to consider it and think about it? I said, no, I don't need to think about it. I know I have the skill set to help the university. And so he was like, all right. I said, well, I'll get back to you um, midweek and we'll talk again. And that was it. We hung up. So then after you hang up the phone, then you have that realization that you have just <laughs> said yes to something pretty darn significant, right? And at the time, and, and I still am an assistant dean and an associate teaching professor over in the College of Nursing, uh, you know, I needed to think about, oh, okay, how's it going to impact my day-to-day? -day? And I was then elevated really to be at an executive level of the organization at the university. And so I thought I spent that entire evening, the whole next Sunday, you know, thinking about all of this, putting things down on paper. I called my dean, who I said, you know, I, can I, can I, is this okay with you? And she's like, absolutely super supportive, could never have done it without my dean's support. Um, but then really it was a takeoff from there. And I often think too that uh, the, you know, you can bring skills and you know you can do a lot of things, but it, you can't do it alone. And so you had, to, I, the first thing that came to mind is I needed a team. I needed a team that represented the university, that had some skill sets to bring in to be able to do this for the university. The, you know, the university is quite big. I don't know if you know the data of the university, uh, but we have over 90,000 students across the Commonwealth and beyond. Uh, we have uh, 37,000 employees that come swim through our system all over the place, and they're not just in Pennsylvania, right? Our, we have employees outside of the Commonwealth. We have 24 campuses. We have lots and lots of activities uh, that go on, and uh, some I affectionately call large group activities. So if you get my drift, right? Large group activities <laughs> that I knew were going to be impacted, and I had to really rapidly. And remember, the pandemic had started months before that. So I really jumped in, and we knew students were going to come to try to come back in literally weeks. So talk about adversity. Talk about trying to put together a team literally overnight, plans and process uh, in place, resources, trying to get everything in place, the technology, the data, who, you know, who, what, where, when, and how. And the best part of all of that was the fact that I was empowered. And this takes, this takes strength. I mean, you talked about Lauren Michaels. He empowered you to do your role, right? In your world, you have someone who empowers her to be a judge and a justice. And here, I needed to be empowered to make decisions at the very highest level uh, with support of the president and, of course, our board. And, uh, you know, but we, there was a lot of constituencies out there. There's a lot of people, and as you all know, have had differing opinions about the pandemic and the impact on our society. And Penn State is just a microcosm, well, a macrocosm, really, of our society. And so trying to navigate all of that. Um, but I knew, my years of service, that I knew I had more service to give. And I was incredibly, I am incredibly honored to have been asked to do that. And I continue to have this role. Um, but it was only because I, I said yes. And so my lesson to you is, if you don't want to get something, <laughs> don't answer your phone on a Saturday afternoon. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> it might give you that minute to say no, uh, but now over two years later, here we are. Uh, and yes, it has not been out without some uh, warts and certainly some bumps. Um, one of you in the meeting yesterday said something really important, and I wanted to just echo the, the afternoon session with Jim. You said, you know, fail fast, and, and, and that's exactly the motto that I've been using. We fail fast, but learn faster. You have, the virus didn't care what we thought about it, the virus was going to impact us, and we needed to move fast to protect our, our Penn Staters, our campuses, and our communities. So that it's an ongoing challenge, 
we have learned, and I'll continue to do the best that I can to What's serve the university. What's the toughest decision you and your team made? The toughest decision was uh, not to come back after uh, Thanksgiving that one fall. That was really a hard decision. Mm -hmm. It was the right decision, but it was a very difficult decision. Let's go to the audience. First of all, all three of you don't undercut yourself. You all have healed. You have all worked in community. Like SNL has been a lifesaver for me as a teacher, as an educator. 20 years in education, like I, I'm sitting here crying with what you said and what you said and what you said. SNL, comedy, stories, that's what's been healing me. And so like one thing that comes up across all of you is you've had to work with people with different lived experiences, right? So like you as a justice, different polit political beliefs, trying to big, bring people together to be nonpartisan. That's not easy to do. I've worked in government, too. And then you, like SNL, trying to make people laugh in such a con like contentious time of life. And with COVID, everybody has an opinion, including non-scientists as the science and math teacher. So like, how do you use communication, stories? How do you get people to empathize with each other? Because I feel like empathy is lacking right now. Um, and people aren't listening to each other. And no, nobody's understanding lived experiences, right? Like, if you have a, a family member, I'm just gonna be honest and vulnerable in this moment, but if you have a family member who's a police officer, and I say something that one of my students died to gun violence, I'm not undercutting that cop. And what he does, or she does, or they do, I'm just saying, I lost a student to gun violence. Like, how can we work together? So, sorry. So how can we have more empathy and work together? You're all- Yeah, that's a great, I, I thank you for your vulnerability. I think that's important. I think the, one of the things I tried to do over this entire time with the COVID is, is have that cup half full. There was a lot of bad news to be able to share, right? But, and we could focus on that in a negative way, but I always, always, always try. And I am really the talking head for the university about this, but a lot, again, there's dozens and dozens of people that support this operation. But to say, hey, but the good news is, right? Here's the good news in all of this. This is what's coming on the horizon. This is how, what we're, we've been doing that's, that's worked out well for us. So you have to have that, I think, give people hope. You have to be able to inspire and keep that positive perspective going forward. Because no one wants a leader. No, I don't think, I don't want a leader that's a doom and gloom person all the time. And so keeping that positive attitude in every meeting, in every presentation, in every forum. You know, what you all are doing out there in your roles, that is helping, helping, right? It's helping, it's positive. It's not always easy, but it's helping. Uh, and, and that's what I tried to do. So I'll turn it over to Tanya. I want to commend you for your authenticity, your transparency, and your vulnerability. Those are all key attributes of a leader. And also to listen, I'm giving, uh, I forgot their names. One was Kelly, I forgot the other name, forgive me at the one o'clock session, they talked about effective communication. And listening is so important, but I wanna tweak it a little bit. It's about empathetic listening, to be an empathetic listener. 
and to engage people, to ask those questions, to, to show them you, 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 you matter. Because we've heard the saying that people may forget what you said, but they will not forget how you made them feel. So we have to engage, we have to ask questions to let people know that they matter and we care about them. And so when you tell these stories, we realize that we are all connected. We're all in this together. And, and many times we have more things in common than not. So we have to engage. And just once again, I just want to applaud you because that's very bold what you did. And we need more boldness out there. So thank you for being bold. Yeah, and I'm going to add to what Tanya just said, really important, is, is I felt super, uh, I needed to be a credible source. I needed to be a credible resource. And so I constantly was saying, this is the truth as I know it to be today. So you have to tell people things are going to change. They will. Uh, when we we couldn't put it, my crystal ball was a bit fuzzy at sometimes, but uh, believe it or not, I got pretty good at knowing how this thing was going to circle through and what it was going to do. Um, and But again, having help, help it with our experts. And then learning where your talent lies. We have a lot of experts here at Penn State that came to bear. Not one person did I call and ask to help me on this. Not one said no. Even if it was a small little task or a huge ask, they all said yes. Um, and the other thing I want to just say, and I, and I want to really give the floor to you about this, is that a lot, I learned from the, well, I learned, you, know, you learn about communication your whole life, but I've, I have had some, what I call fan mail, um, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of fan mail, right? Half full kind of way. Yep, kind of have. But the best thing for me was I would call, I would talk to that person on the phone. Email is not our friend. It is not our friend. But when you call people, you allow them to, to vocalize their, if they wanted to scream at me, what I, I, it, that, was, that was valuable to me because it helped. And then you humanize it. I think that goes right back to what Tanya just said. We had to humanize it. And remember, I mean, I had a kid who went to Penn State, right? So I get it, parents. I get it that people were scared. They were scared, mad, and the whole spectrum of, it, of emotions. And they still are. Um, I'm getting some fan mail now as we welcome students back to the campuses. <laughs> but I talk to people. And that's the key. And it's worth taking that time, right, to have that conversation um, because then, then you, you're you take the barriers down. And that's really been, I think, helpful for me to overcome some of this adversity in the past couple of years, so. Don, anything? Uh, one. one quick note. I, I don't feel qualified to talk about uh, Saturday Night Live's uh, influence on, on the, the national tone. I'm not sure that I understand the divisiveness in, in this country or can add anything to it. But I will say that 30 years ago, I think that a show called All in the Family made a big difference in how we viewed our, our the racial balance in this country. I mean, all of us knew some bigoted guy sat on his porch, had a rifle in his closet, and we were afraid of that guy. But 
we got all, as, as a unified nation, we got to laugh at Archie Bunker and see that he was a jerk and see that, that, that he was someone that we could all kind of talk about the next morning at the, at the water cooler. And I think it made a difference. Uh, I hope and, and believe that, that shows like Saturday Night Live continue to do that for us. And, and um, I, I, I'm proud of those 16 years that I spent with him as a result. Next question, Char, who, who do we have? Hi. Um, I first uh, would like to say, uh, he, he just, I just, he, I just want to give him a big hug because he's so humble. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can arrange that. Oh, yeah. We have a party he, after he's this. Just, so. He's just so, yeah, I don't have grandparents, so like they all, yeah, yeah so he, he just like that old grandpa that I just never had. <laughs> uh, a new role for you, Don. Yeah. <laughs> No, but like my serious question is like, you know, in, in terms of all your industries and the jobs that you do, right? What is a challenge that you foresee in your work? And what do you feel could be a very nice solution towards solving that impending challenge? Whether it be your, your work as, uh, for, for the COVID task force, your legal career, mm -hmm. and just the amazing work that you do for the media. So entertainment the law, and healthcare. That's yeah, I'll start. Good. I can be pretty quick. Uh, healthcare, uh, a bullet train is coming our way. Uh, it's already started, and it's coming our way, and we're going to have to deal with it. Two things, behavioral health, mental health challenges in our, in our nation, and that is, it's not particular to any age group or race or anything, mental health. And the other thing is we have a, a disability coming our way with this long COVID uh, that people are going to experience long lasting effects from the pandemic that we don't yet now have the science behind it, right? But it's coming. Uh, and, and frankly, I am um, sad to say that our healthcare system is not set up to, to manage it right now. So we need strong leaders across the industry to see that now, recognize that now, make the changes that are necessary because this is going to take generation, a generation uh, of impact. Uh, so I'll pause there. Kelly, before we, why is healthcare or why is mental health rising? You have an interesting window into this. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's a whole other seminar. Um, I, I think we're beginning to see the data that there is, there is a lot having to do with uh, the environment in which folks are, are brought into the world and our experience. I think uh, coping skills, the way that we are educating folks on that you know, early on and have changed over the years. I think we have these influences, these powerful influences with the media and with social media and with, it's, it's like it never stops. The assault on our eyes and our ears and our brains with information, right? Either positive or negative, it never stops. We don't turn off. And I, I think that's a problem. We have to teach people how to turn off uh, the, the bad and, and build the inner good. Uh, and I, I don't have a solution for that, unfortunately, because I just think it's, it's growing and growing and growing. And, and we have a lot of people out there trying to deal with this uh, but it is, it's going to get worse before it gets any better, I think. From healthcare to the law. Also, mental wellness uh, with respect to law students, with respect to attorneys, with respect to judges. The threat of judicial independence and the rule of law. 
also the digital divide as it relates to virtual proceedings. Virtual proceedings are here to stay. And we, we have to think about access to justice. I, I believe that technology furthers access to justice. But for those situations in certain communities where there's an issue with broadband uh, access, economics and the like, how will the uh, court system deal with that? Also, you have women leaving large law firms. Why is that? You have to look at that. Certainly, uh, self-represented litigants, they cannot afford a lawyer. How are you going to deal with that? And certainly, increasing the pipeline for underrepresented, underrepresented groups to become lawyers, to become judges, and, and certainly the cost of education. But I'm an optimist, and I believe in the generations before my generation. I am a Gen Xer, and, and, and I believe that it's the generations behind me who, who I just am very proud of that um, they've come out, they have spoken out about the various issues, and I have hope that they will give some of the solutions and that there will be, how would I say, a coming together of the intergenerational relationships to solve some of the issues uh, in the law, in the healthcare, in the media. So I say that the glass is half full. Of all those things you talked about as challenges, and that was fab fabulous, which one are you most personally interested in? Really, all of the above. All of the above. All, be, you know, and, and the thing is, related to, aren't that's you? it. Yeah, yeah. Entertainment, Don. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, although the question did start with a lovely hug, thank, thank you. <laughs> and a new grandson. And a new grandson. Right. And a new grandson. The fact is that uh, the biggest issue that I ever had to deal with was once Saturday Night Live went live all across the country. It used to be uh, delayed to 11.30 in all the time zones, but about five or six years ago we went live so that it's seen at 8.30 in the West Coast and so on, live across the country. And the biggest issue I had to deal with was since it's a primetime show now, are we allowed to say goddamn on the air? <laughs> And uh, turns out we can, we can yeah. So, <laughs> however, I, I also have to add that I, I am retired and uh, as of this past December and no longer have anything to do with it. But that's, um, that relates perhaps to, to just one other observation, and that is how, this, how it happened. My last birthday, I looked at the number, I said, 
Oh, my God, I've never been this old in my whole life. <laughs> I said, oh, that might get in the way. This might be, it might be uh, memory lapses or, or slower reaction time or just lack of stamina that will, that will be my Achilles heel. No, it turns out my Achilles heel was actually my Achilles heel. <laughs> I, an ankle injury that I got here in Rec Hall came back out of retirement to send me into one. And so uh, that, that re- relates to a question you asked a long time ago about of the uh, a big obstacle. And that was, I'm, I'm not ready to stop. I'm not ready to retire. I, you, uh, I, but I can't walk. Or I certainly have to get it operated on and then won't be able to move around, at least get from the control room to the studio. And so I am now retired. <laughs> and people call me grandfather. I... <laughs> <laughs> Don, stay with that for a minute. That's, you know, that's a change. We talked a lot about change at this conference. What's been your biggest adjustment as you went from that amazing job where you were on yes. to yes. now? What's, what has been the well, biggest I've discovered that I hate it. <laughs> no, I had a great adjustment. My daughter uh, graduated from Carnegie Mellon uh, two years ago as, with a degree in theater directing. Mm. And uh, she went to, she went to uh, the, the high school for the performing arts in Manhattan, uh, the fame school, uh, uh, LaGuardia. And after her first year, she said, Daddy, I don't think I want to be a, an actor. I think I want to be a director. And I started to puff up a little bit. She said, but, but not like you. I want to be a real director. <laughs> Daughters. I, said, I want to direct actors on stage, not that TV comedy stuff. Well, it turns out that she was right. She happens to have this passion. She's good at it. She graduated, and she's been working at the Bay Street Theater out in the Hamptons for the last two summers as sort of the assistant to all the directors that come in to do their main stage productions. And this year, they asked her to direct the final show of the season, which is a, a smaller show, uh, which is basically for the acting interns to perform. And she picked a play, a lovely play called Indian Summer, which happens to have a a 70-year-old man in the cast. And for some reason, there's no 70-year-old intern this year. (laughs) So she cast her dad. (laughs) Yes. You're adjusting very well to this new life. I'm I'm limping out there next week to to be in this play. Uh, Can we all get tickets? Yeah. I'm, I'm we'll $20. get that Penn State blue bus and we'll all motor yes, over. Yes, do it, do it, do it, do it. Three performances uh, last week in August. Thank you. Awesome. All right, next question. Who has the mic? Over here. My question is for Don, do you have lines? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Do you have lines? Remember? You're not, not, it's your not first only, talking part. I, I, Absolutely, and I've spent, fortunately, had the entire summer to learn them. (laughs) I forgot how hard it is to do that, and for some reason, the older you get, the slower you are at memorizing lines, but I've got them down now. I can do a monologue for you if you want. We we might go there. We might. Or or maybe at the dinner tonight. Yeah, okay. Okay, Okay, uh, one more. One more question. We have... Thanks. Um, my question is, since you have all graduated, what is the biggest change that you've seen with the university that's been a beneficial or you think like you wish you had um, when you were around? That's a good question. 
I'll start, yeah. I think. Uh, the world campus has really mm. been a huge change for the university, right? I mean, there's nearly, there's about 18 to 20,000 students in that system, and that really can reach across, around the world. And I've had the privilege of serving on our Commission for Adult Learners. Last year, I was the chair of that commission. Really, the reach of Penn State around the globe, uh, just, uh, just, whew, off the charts with the world campus. Now, I know it's, it's older. I mean, it's been around for a long time now, but it wasn't here when I was a student. So I think that is one of the amazing things. Uh, the second thing I would say is the emphasis on our innovation, uh, the, the innovation, the launch boxes and all of that that uh, uh, Dr. Barron initiated when he was president uh, and the growth of that across the, the university, I think really helps in that space and the creativity space. And um, so I appreciate all of those. There's, I'm sure, tons more. Kelly, I had a Penn State, you reminded me, I had a Penn State pride moment this morning. I got up early and hiked up Mount Nittany. I've never done that in all my years of coming here. And I met a young guy on the trail, and he introduced himself to me. He said, I'm from Seville, and I just arrived here a few weeks ago. I'm in, I'm in the world campus, and I'm here personally now to do some research. And, and he said, I just love it here. I feel at home. I'm learning. I couldn't be happier. It was a beautiful moment and shows the power of the world campus. So I agree with you on that. Okay, Tanya. I'm going to concur with my fellow Nittany Lion. Also, I wish I could be a student again, just for like maybe a day or two, because these dorms, if I could just go inside and just look, I was like, wow. But you know, and let me just say that I came to Penn State because I felt that the campus was so conducive to learning. The dorms weren't that bad, but these dorms are really fabulous. And I, you know, j just, just the, the, the modernization of, of the campus. And also, I have to say that it warms my heart to see this embrace of diversity and inclusion. And I, I, I wanna tell on myself, when I was a student, I really, hung out with people who looked like me. I'm being honest with you, right? And years later, I see now that you have students from all ethnicities hanging together, forming friendships. That necessarily did not happen when I was a student. Now, I benefit from those friendships now because of my involvement with the school. I have two mentees, one who does not look like me and one who looks like me. But I also love the fact about, as I'm walking downtown, I see the banners about the different groups uh, I saw a banner about Latin students belong here, black students belong here. I think that is very important. And that didn't necessarily exist. I have to be honest with you. When, when I was here, any institution, any institution will always have issues with race, class, and gender. Any institution. But it warms my heart to know that Penn State is owning up to some of those issues. And, and taking steps to bring people together, but more importantly, 
to embrace and to celebrate those differences. Don, you're a graduate of the School of Broadcasting. <laughs> Don, you're a graduate of the School of Broadcasting. You've been working with amazing talent in your career. So I'd like to toss the ball to you as the moderator here. Do you have a question you'd like to ask these two amazing women up here at the stage? An area or topic or question like you'd like to? That, you look bewildered. This is dangerous. Yeah, I know. You have a speaking part now. <laughs> I sort of like that hug idea. <laughs> I guess since my experience here was uh, so many years ago, and when I hear the two of you talk about what it's like now and, and, and how things have changed and when things work and don't work, I, I feel younger. <laughs> I feel that, uh, that there is uh, a revitalization uh, um, and, and, a, and a renewal for me. Uh, are either of you feeling that coming back? Well, for you, not coming back, but being back. And for you, coming back, it, it just, is, is there a sense of, of refreshment for you? Yeah, I, I'll, I can start. I never thought I would be back here in Happy Valley. Uh, so my journey of my career, I, le I left home when I was 17, arrived here, thought I'd be four years, I'd go in the army, boom. I never, ever thought I'd be back here. And when I did eventually get offered a position at the university and I arrived in Happy Valley, I thought, well, this is kind of like coming full circle here. Some things, some sidewalks have not changed at all, right? Uh, the, and the forum building is still the same. But there's a lot of change here. And what I feel here is an energy of hope, of energy of next generation. When I hear anyone, um, and occasionally somebody will complain about being around here and students, are, and I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Students are our raison d'etre. They are the reason we are here. And I love this time of year. I don't care if every parking lot is full. I don't care if every parent is asking inst for instructions on where to go. I don't care if all those big wheelie things with the front. I don't care if every restaurant now has lines. I don't care that Trader Joe's is backed up. I don't care because they're why we are here. And I will always believe that Penn State will continue to be a place where we send our kids there's a lot of generations here, right? A lot of generational kids, but a lot of kids from around the world now coming to Penn State, and it will be, it will impact them forever, forever, and uh, in a, in a good way. And I'm, I, that's to me, about the energy that here. I love being on faculty here, uh, and and I tell people I retired from the military. I don't need to be here. <laughs> I'm here because I want to be here, and I feel like that I can help um, the next generation of Penn Staters, and so I'm completely honored to continue to do that work. I enjoy returning to Happy Valley, and we talked about this off stage. When I was a student, I really just couldn't appreciate all that Happy Valley has to offer, and I am from New York, New York, particularly Harlem. So I'll tell you, I am urban. And for those of you from New York, I always say, I need to be in walking distance to a bodega, okay? I need that. I need the train, I need the bus. However, I like 
taking the mega bus, if you can believe it. I like taking the mega bus up to Penn State because I reminisce. I walk on the campus. I remember we talked about the form building, Shields building, Lot 80. <laughs> lot 80, which is now the law school. <laughs> Amazing. And I always remember my first day in Runkle Hall. So when I come back, it gives me a sense of youthfulness. Some of you may remember I use that term young at heart. I feel young again when I come back to Happy Valley. I reminisce. Yes, it brings me hope. It brings me happiness. And you already know that I'm urban. I like the hustle and bustle. But it's something to be said just about the serenity of Penn State, going to the creamery, going to the federal tap house, going to Target. I like going to Walmart. <laughs> I like Walmart. <laughs> now, you know that as a judge, I cannot, um, you know, promote. So I'm not promoting anything. I'm just telling you about my experience. <laughs> but you know what? And I come up here to be social. I was here for the 4th of July. I had a great time. Went to the winery, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, Penn State is a source of Thank renewal, hope, just being happy. And when I text my mom, and I'll stop talking, you know, I, would, I said, greetings from Happy Valley. Greetings from Happy Valley. This is a happy place. Yeah, but nobody called you grandma. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never live that down. Uh, I have a question for you. you you're all, um, you worked as an employee, you worked as bosses, you worked on teams. Could you reflect on something a boss or an employee did for you that was extremely meaningful that you can remember today? Yes. Tanya, yeah. <laughs> um, two, two things. I had a supervisor. I worked at the uh, New York City Law Department Corporation Council, and she told me that I was going to be a judge. And I laughed at her. And I laughed at her because How I How old were you then? I was probably like, what, maybe 26, 27, something like that. I laughed at her. And the reason why I laughed is because I could not see myself in that situation. I never even imagine myself being in that, in that position. And I use her to say that very often, people will see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And so I encourage each one of you to speak into the lives of others, whether it's someone that's younger, your age, because that gives them a boost and I'll stick with Corporation Council because then I became a supervisor, uh, third in the totem pole. And the assistant, who was the, the deputy uh, chief, he would take me to those leadership meetings. He would expose me. That was a wonderful, wonderful thing. His name was Jeff Grossman, and the woman who told me I was gonna become a judge her name is Betty Lawrence Lewis, and I call their names. And it's important that you honor the people that brought you over. N never, never forget about them.
So I have benefited from that and so many others, but you just said one, I gave you two. No, it's a beautiful story. Don, how about yourself? I'm gonna pass on that right now. You're gonna pass on that right now. Uh, Kelly? So when I, I'll tell you a little military story. I was back, I was a first lieutenant, I was stationed, um, I was just a young officer and um, lots of energy, thought I knew everything about nursing, about the military, you know, just go, go, go. I'm from New York, so kind of a New York-y way of doing things. And I had a senior leader bring me into her office one day and she said, she sat me down, it was your performance evaluation conversation, and she said, you know, I look at you as a diamond in the rough. <laughs> she said, but you need some polishing. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? She was right, but she knew enough to tell me that mm -hmm. and was going to be there to help me polish. Uh, and so we are still friends today. Uh, so, it, but I will never, just the way she did that was gentle but firm, right? And so you, you never, I don't think you're ever baked, right? You're never perfect at anything. And so there's always room for someone to help you polish a little bit. I'm still baking. I'm still baking. <laughs> I love baking. Indeed. I love eating baked goods. This is a good town for that too. All right, back to the audience. Is there a question or two? Hi. Um, so when it comes to your careers, can you each speak on the impact that mentorship has had either as a mentor or as a mentee? The impact of mentorship or menteeship in your career. Yeah, so the military is really built on that. Mm -hmm. uh, so very fortunate early on in the military that you have a mentor relationship. Uh, and again, some are good, some are not so good, uh, but they all give you lessons learned to take with. And because you change roles and responsibilities so frequently in the military, there's always a new opportunity to uh, have a new leader or a new mentor in your program or in your life. I, I have several who I still keep in touch with uh, that st started out when I was really junior in the military and that's very helpful. But then in my years in academia, the reason why I actually got out of the military is because I had kept in touch with some colleagues uh, in academia from when I was in graduate school way back in the day uh, and who invited me to join academia. And so keeping those relationships alive and connected, even if it's just an email every now and then or a Christmas card or a note saying I'm thinking of you really is important. And believe me, I think they get as much out of it as you do as a mentor and mentee relationship. I've tried to be as much of a, a mentor to f folks as, as much as I can. Uh, I still get uh, emails and calls from folks I worked with in the military who are asking me to write a letter of recommendation or help them do something or give them a little career guidance. And I always make time for that. I just think it's, it helps, makes me feel good, frankly. And then I know it's gonna help them. And, and so I, I try to do that. And interestingly enough, my son now, I tell everyone my son got accepted to Penn State, but he chose to go to West Point. Uh, so he's, <laughs> I, know. I tell him he can come back to the world campus and get a grad degree from here. But he's in the army now. And interesting that my counterparts in the military who are still in the military are now meeting my son as a lieutenant. And they have, they have wrapped their arms around this kid, right? So no matter where he goes, he meets a senior officer. And he's just a lieutenant, and these are, you know, like star generals who go seek him out, take him out to dinner, and make sure that he's doing okay. And you know what? You, that is just so invaluable. So it's a family event, and it reminds me very much of a Penn State community, right? Our alumni association, we're everywhere, we connect. It doesn't matter. I just invited all of them. If they ever had trouble staying in town, they could call me, and I have a room in my house. I've got a big house out in Bullsburg, and, you know, sometimes a Hotels here are not easy to get, nor cheap, 
but I'm, I always have space for people at my house. And that's just you know, because we're Penn Staters. So it's very similar uh, to the military culture. And that's what I love about it. So, now so, we all want to hug you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it keeps me alive, right? It keeps me living. And, and I, I just love it. I believe in mentoring. I have been fortunate to have a number of mentors, some that look like me, and, and most, they don't. I am also fortunate to have relationships with former mentees that I now consider a family member. But I also believe in something that's called reverse mentoring. That's key. Now, you know that I'm 55 years young. Would you believe that my former mentees, and you know, they're in the 20s, they mentor me. And I find that very exciting because it keeps me relevant. I, I think it's so important to be relevant that I can engage with the various generations. But I wanna talk about something else that I think is even more important than a mentor. M mentor is important, okay? We're gonna put that box over here. But a sponsor, that's really more important because the sponsor is the one with the power, with the clout, who can speak on your behalf when you are not in the room. Can you tell me your name, please? Janelle? Janelle? Uh, you know, do we think about that assignment for Janelle? Do we think about that promotion for Janelle? That is key. So how do you get a sponsor? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you do that by perfecting your craft, pursuing excellence, being nice, being engaging, smiling, but showing up. And what I mean by showing up, not necessarily coming to the office, but bringing your authentic self, being the best you. So please get a mentor, be a mentor, but also it's key to have a sponsor. And I believe that all of us have benefited, well, the four of us have benefited from both mentorship and sponsorship. I only wanted to say that I'm a big fan of sponsors too. They paid my salary for that. <laughs> I, was one of your, I was one of your sponsors, Parker and Gamble. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate, anyway. This, you've all had and are having great careers. And Kelly, we stumbled on your job title because you're involved in so much, right? And, and Don, you've had this career that is just incredible for all of us to learn more about. You're gonna be swamped at the, at the, at the dinner tonight. And now you're moving into acting. <laughs> and Tanya, you're so inspiring, you're so engaging. Yeah, in, law is so, so fundamentally important and you're, you're making change there, positive change. So could you all just reflect for a moment on the most important characteristic 
in a successful, happy, fulfilling career and life. Let me say it this way. Opportunities happen when you show up. And please engage me afterwards so I can tell you about how opportunities happen when you show up. Because I'm in my position now because I showed up somewhere. Mm. And we'll get to that. The other thing is being flexible and open to change. And, oh, okay. Go ahead. You're well. You can stay past five. Being strategic. We'll talk more about that if you engage me. Don. I was fortunate enough, or maybe unfortunate enough, when I was in my 20s to uh, direct a show called The Mike Douglas Show, which was big time, daytime talk show, sort of like the Ellen of its day. And I was over my head. I was 25 or something. And it was a, it was a big time show with big time performers. Uh, but one year, I won a daytime Emmy for directing. <laughs> and well, that's, that's, that's what I thought, too. <laughs> and the very next day, I became a jerk. I, I, be, that. Producer would come up and say, I want to do the fashion show a little differently this week. Bring Miles in from this side. And I'd say, well, wait, wait a minute. Uh, do you have an Emmy? Be I have an Emmy. <laughs> so I think we'll do it my way. Well, I, I had that attitude and was impossible to deal with for, uh, for another year until I was asked to be on the judging panel the following year for the daytime Emmy directing nominees. And it's done differently now, but at the time we would go into an office or into a hotel room and sit and spend the entire weekend just watching show after show. And after about the third show, I thought, oh man, just put on something that'll keep me awake. This is painful to watch all the shows. <laughs> and I realized that I was no longer judging the quality of the directing. I was just waiting for something that was entertaining. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I wonder if that's what happened when I won. <laughs> and I look back, and the show that I had won for was a, a show where Mike had convinced Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly to come on the same show and talk about old-time Hollywood. And they had never done that before. It was these two old-time old guys just sitting there talking about what Hollywood was like and what being a star was like. And it was fascinating television that had nothing at all to do with the directing. <laughs> I mean, it could have been directed by a relatively bright parrot. Just point the camera to whoever's talking. But I thought, oh my God, that's what happened. Those people sat in that room and they thought, oh, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, this is, uh, give the statue to that kid. <laughs> I realize it's just not a very scientific process. So very early on in my career, I learned that lesson about things like awards and have won a few since and realized that, that it in no way is a sign that God created television so that I could show off. No, it's, it's a sign that, that it was an entertaining, entertaining show produced and written and performed by people who are worth seeing and listening to and, and, and watching. And uh, directing is a very small margin of what, that, what, what matters. And I guess that lesson... Oh, I forgot the question again. Don't be a jerk. Don't but, be a jerk. But Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, and Michael Douglas, why, my gosh, that must have been amazing. 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 It was. That's why I forgot the question. Yeah. <laughs> we enjoyed it. <laughs> I would just say very briefly is always 
keep in your circle of friends someone who's going to tell you, hey, you, you're not all that in a bag of chips, so stop it, right, to keep you grounded yep. um, once you have that, because it could get, uh, it can get overpowering, right, or overwhelming, and you can get a little uh, uh, bigger than your shoes, uh, but you're just one, you're just human, um, so keeping that person close to you is really important. This panel has been marvelous. Thank you, all of you. That was my conversation with Tanya Don Roy King and Kelly Walgast. I'll tell you one big takeaway from this one is, and you could tell, you could hear it in their voices, you could hear it in the repartee among the three guests. They just all love and loved their work. Don Roy King just retired. The other are very active. And the one takeaway from this is, do you love your work as much as these three do? Because you can tell it from their results, from their passion, from their convictions, and from how they feel about how they are spending their time in their careers. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.